All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are live and I am beyond excited. I always say that, but it's always the truth because I have some of the most amazing and interesting people in the Hollywood sphere. And today is a treat and a rarity because today we have the angel. She is a film composer in Hollywood, and that's not something that you hear that often, a female film composer and scorer, but she is so much more than that. Her IMDb page, as I said in my reel earlier today, is amazing. So when you look up the word prolific in the, in the dictionary, she's <laughs> sitting there because her IMDb, you know what, go Google her IMDb page because we would be here all night with me talking about all of the things that she's done, the films and the television shows that she scored. But just let me give you a little background on who this young lady, the angel is. I'm just going to read a little bit of her bio. And this is a short bio. And when I read it and then when I researched her, I said, wow. And she's modest as well. A uh, Brooklyn native composer, the angel has combined her early skills as an electronic music record producer, recording artist, and remixer to become one of a handful of women to have scored studio and independent features, as well as network and cable television. Pioneering an eclectic sound, the angel has tapped to bring fresh sensibilities to her film and TV score. Since relocating to L.A. from her adoptive city of London, and we are definitely going to talk about that. As a composer, the angel has created cutting edge score for feature films like Boiler Room and a UK cult hit kid adulthood, as well as hybrid organic traditional score for television series, including the Fox FBI drama standoff, the TNT Jada Pinkett's medical drama Hawthorne that I watched religiously and Ava DuVernay's DOJ themed CBS pilot for justice to name a few so it is my honor to welcome the angel to a conversation with angel welcome to the show how are you thank you floyd it's a real pleasure to be here and to finally see you since we only really know each other by voice yes 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 clubhouse that's so interesting i've become such good friends with so many people on clubhouse yeah. And I've yet to see a lot of them face to face, yes. as far as face to face goes, uh, on Zoom, in person, what have you. But sure. it, it's it's been such a game changer because it has put me in proximity to people such as yourself, and it's such an honor. And it's such an honor to actually just sit and listen to you on Clubhouse because you're so knowledgeable and you're so willing to just share that knowledge with without expecting anything in return. So yeah, it, it's definitely an honor to have you here today. And I'm so excited because if there's anyone out there and they've decided that that's the road that they want to take as far as film, scoring, engineering, anything like that, this is the perfect guest and you are in the right space. Welcome.
welcome to a conversation with where we sit down with some amazing people in the film, media, and entrepreneurial space. We're going to talk about what makes them successful and hopefully we'll give you something to help you maximize your business, but more importantly, to maximize your life. So sit back and enjoy a conversation with, and I'm your host, Floyd Marshall Jr. So Angel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I did start out in Brooklyn. Um, I started out as a record producer without even knowing that that's what it was called. I just w- was very kind of drawn to technology and music. I, st- I played piano as a kid, and I, but n- I never in a million years thought I would do this professionally. It was just something I did for, for uh, my own pleasure. I stopped reading music because I didn't really enjoy the process of reading music, believe it or not. I... Um, and I never had the, the, the desire to become sort of a virtuoso player. My, my love really early on was writing. I just, I would write little songs for myself. Again, without any thought to ever doing this professionally. And so, but as, as I got older and as I got into other types of music and I was always into very eclectic styles of music, I wound up learning, teaching myself how to program and how to work with all kinds of different flavors in my music. And one of the things I did when I'd actually moved to London, I went from Brooklyn to London, I, I wound up demoing some songs that I then brought with me to Los Angeles, and I wound up making a record deal or signing a record deal with Delicious Vinyl. And this is the early 90s, so when Delicious were, they were right at the point where they were having hits with like Tone Loke, and the far side and the brand new heavies. And so I'm a young MC. So I was part of that, that crew at that time. And they were really trying to expand their sort of acid jazz, you know, content on the label. And so I brought these, all these flavors, you know, dub and soul and reggae and funk and hip hop. And so I'm sort of an early pioneer of trip hop. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And that's something that I caught because actually earlier when I was getting out of my car and I was thinking about you, I said, nowhere did it say she went to film school. No. And I just found that so fascinating. I never went to film school. And that's that's a takeaway for anyone who's listening now or will be listening in the future that you don't necessarily need to go that route to end up somewhere on your journey. Good point. I mean, and I'm a great example of someone who went the non-traditional route with practically every single thing in my life because I'm self, you know, I'm self-driven and like, and, and I, and that I'm not talking about driven in terms of like getting, you know, reaching goals and going after things. It's more about when I'm passionate and excited about something, then I want to know it. I want to learn it. I want to, and I, and I'll do it. I'll just do it on my own. So I taught myself how to create music on my own. So I didn't have to depend on anyone else. And as I said earlier, you know, I, I didn't even know what I was doing was producing when I created those first uh, recordings. And when I brought those things to Delicious, they were like, so who produced it? And I was like, I I guess I did because I sat in a room by myself and this is what I came out with, you know. And so it was 
it occurred to me only after the fact that that's what I was doing. I had a vision for something and then I knew in- instinctively how to ex- execute that vision. And, um, and that's sort of carried through to the many different things that I've done throughout my life. So that's interesting. So you're self-taught. So, well, hmm, how did you know what type of equipment to buy? I mean, I guess you did a lot of research, figuring out because um, you're 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 writing for yourself, and you you begin to make music. So, how did you figure out what to buy? The type of uh, well, I guess for back of a lack of a better word, synthesizers and things like that. How did you know what to buy, or did you just basically go into the store and test things out and says, "Well, you know what? This is aligned with with the sound that I want, so this is something that I'm going to pick up." Yeah, I had a bunch of friends that were making music, oh, okay. so you know everyone had some different kind of a setup. And back in the '90s, you know, we didn't have what we have now. Yes, <laughs> it didn't exist yet. So, but samplers were starting to, you know, were just being born as as a technology that could be used and it was at a time when I was really uh, listening to a lot of hip-hop and was really excited by the notion of sampling and and how to involve cool samples in my music of course that is long gone as far as I'm concerned as far as what I do mm-hmm. and certainly in film composing and there's no it's a big no-no you can't be doing that but I but it was exciting to me I understood why so many hip-hop producers were really excited by the notion of creating music in a completely non-traditional way you know the bomb squad did the most unbelievable productions and that really just it spoke to me so i um yeah so basically everyone i knew kind of around me was into music and so it was like if i get that and if i get this and i get the sequencer and i mean i i scored a lot of my, I even scored Boiler Room on an Atari, believe it or not, with Cubase, which was an early, and it's still around. It's a sequencing pack, uh, sequencing um, program. But, um, you know, I, I'm not using Cubase on Atari anymore. You scored a major motion picture on a game console. Yes, because that game console was what was ad- adopted to be the, the, the console like it you could run that particular software on that uh, on an Atari and it was amazing it was very powerful but for for then it was like an amazing thing and that was that was the the thing like everybody had one of if, you know if you're programming music that's what you were using back in the day so wow that that's that is so interesting it, it's amazing what what you learn and it's so interesting because a lot of the gaming consoles now it's not just a gaming console. It's so much more. You can do yes. so many different things with a gaming console. So I guess back then Atari was cutting edge. Well, 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 let me ask you this. Did someone just stumble upon the fact that you could use this for that? And, and just say, I, hey, you know what? You, you know you can actually use an Atari gaming system to do this. You know, somebody had the foresight. I don't, and I can't remember their name, and, and I know their name, but it's just, it's just act in the in the cobwebs at the moment. Yes. But, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, somebody was actually brilliant enough, in fact, to 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 look at this and say, ah, I can I can create this program that will work with with this computer, mm. which is a very very basic 
but as we said at the time, it was a powerful thing and it was an amazing piece of technology. So that opened up a lot of doors. And, and I say this also because, you know, people get very hung up about, well, I have to have like the Rolls Royce of every single thing. And that's not true. You know, everything that we use to create any of our art, really, but especially music, you know, they're just tools and it's a matter of how you use them. And you can have the most basic tool in the world and come up with something brilliant. And you can have no tools and just pick up a guitar and, and create something brilliant. You know, whatever it is, it's just it's a matter of what you what we bring our creativity to the to that task, to whatever it is that we're creating. So um, I never let anything get in my way. I didn't have a lot of money. I really kind of like saved up and I could do a little something and then I'd make a little money and like, put it into the next thing. And it was never about like, you know, building an empire. It was always about the creativity. I loved what I did. I, I really loved it. And it was great to that I was able to, you know, I, I didn't plan to come to LA and stay, but because I made a re an album for Delicious, it, it required me to kind of come back and do a little promo. But when I got back here, they no longer had distribution. They lost their, their distribution with Atlantic at that time. So we got like one single released. And then I was like, well, but I kind of liked it here. And they were getting me remixing my, my label mates. I remixed The Far Side, The Brand New Heavies, uh, Michael Franti's Spearhead. And then Blue Note asked me to score, not to score, to remix something from their catalog they said listen you can pick anything you want from our vaults and they gave that the same directive to a bunch of really fantastic hip-hop producers um everyone from like the roots to um like the time guru oh uh, doing jasmine's yeah i know i really oof. and it was a, a great project it was a really beautiful they, they put an album together of remixes and um and i picked a donald bird track that was it had been sitting in the vault since the 60s, unreleased. Mm. And this, if I tell you how beautiful this piece was, it blew my mind that it had never been released up until that point. So um, I picked that song and I said, look, can I, I'd really like to put a vocalist on it. Would you be up for that? Would you, you know? And they said, sure, whatever you want to do. So I brought in Mystic, who is a Bay Area rapper, and she's also known as uh, DU Goddess because she's part of the whole digital underground crew the only woman in that in that crew and at the time she had never recorded anything under her own name that was released as mystic and i'd i'd been turned on to her by college radio djs because i used to do college radio tours and stuff you know in the early days so I someone gave me a cassette and she was doing spoken word and it was really beautiful and i thought there'll be a time i can't think exactly when and sure enough, this opportunity came along and I gave her a call and said, hey, do you want to collaborate on this? Would you like to write something, write a spoken word piece that we can then in include in this remix? And so that's what happened. And the reason I give you the backstory specifically on this piece is because it led me directly into composing. Uh, because it, this this remix caught the ear of Vondi Curtis Hall. Vondi, who had been a very successful actor, he was in Chicago Hope, I believe, and he wrote and directed a film called Gridlocked. And Gridlocked was one of Tupac's last movies, so Tupac and Tim Roth and Tandy Newton before any before Tandy became the huge success that she is today. And it was one of it was really the last the last thing that, that Tupac did. It was really the timing was just crazy. Yeah, that was but, a good movie. It was a fun it was a, a fun buddy story. 
you know, I'm trying to kick, trying to kick heroin. And, um, you know, and it could have been heavy, but it was actually, you know, it was sort of dramedy was the, was the, the feel. But the interesting thing was, so they had me, they, um, they wanted to license that song, which was great. They did. And they licensed that from Blue Note, that remix that I did of, of Donald Byrd. But at the same time, um, they came back, they, they came to me directly, the producers and said, hey, you know what, we really love your sound. And we would love it if you would consider scoring our film. And it was, you know, at the time, I, I hadn't scored a whole film yet. I'd, I'd done some, I'd, I'd, I had done some uh, some cues for a film called Till There Was You. And I was not the by a long shot the lead composer on that. It was Miles Goodman and Terrence Blanchard. But there were some scenes in that film that required something a little different. They wanted like what they call scores. So there were these kind of goofy scenes in this very pretentious restaurant where, you know, you could get hit in the head by these rotating sculptures and things. And so, you know, again, the, the, the tone was sort of dramedy. And they wanted some score that would play like source music as if it was coming out of a radio or something or just over the system. Um, but hit but play the drama and play the, the humor in the scenes. And so I cut my teeth on that. And by the time Gridlock came around, I had at least done something. But then I learned a little bit about politics in the business, mm. which is that um, the producers and the director really wanted me to score Gridlocked. But Polygram, the studio, turned around to them and said, no way, she's never scored a film. Just, you know, nah, pick again. <laughs> pick oh, wow. another car. Yeah, literally. So, unfortunately, you know, so that was kind of a big disappointment, as you could imagine. And yeah. they wound up hiring Stuart Copeland, who's the drummer from the police. He'd been scoring some stuff by then. He Rumblefish had, had already come, come out, and people really loved what he did. And and so that was it. It was just like, wow, that that's a drag. It was nice that the remix went into the film, so that I had some connection to the film. But interestingly enough, six weeks later. They called me and I, when I thought it was completely dead. And they said, you know what? We really want to involve you somehow. Hmm. Can, you know, maybe you could work with Stuart or maybe we could give you, if you would rather work alone, you know, we could give you something, scenes that you, you deal with just on your own that you can create the score for. And so I, I said, well, I'll tell you what, you know, the way I create what, I, what you seem to love is just me alone. I don't, you know, I'm not collaborating with anyone. So if you want that, um, then it would be wise to just have me work on my own scenes. And I, you know, it's so funny. I had no idea about the politics of any of this stuff. Right. I was just, you know, but I was just being honest and real with them. And they said, great, let's do that. So that's what happened. I wound up doing six or seven cues that were just specifically for me. And St Stuart did the rest. And, um, and then came time for credits. And, and another lesson that I had to learn. So at the end of it, they were really happy with what I did and it was all good. And Stuart was a real gentleman. And, you know, we, we met uh, we met once and then we went our separate ways and, and both worked on the film separately. But but they said, well, we can either give you here's here's two options. And this was at, at, at a time when filmmakers were deciding to take back-end credits, like it became a paper to be, even for the director to take a back-end credit. So they said, we can either give you a single card after Bondi's, after the director, at, at the end of the film, or you, we can give you a, a fade-in credit with Stewart at the front of the film. So it would say, music by Stuart Copeland, and then it would fade in, and 
and and additional music by the angel or and the angel something one of those two things so you know i i knew it would have some sort of like knock-on effect going forward and i wasn't sure what to do so i spoke to my lawyer about it and i said well what what difference you know which one is a better thing to go for? I really don't know. And he said, you know what? Um, it's very hard to get a single card, even no matter how much you've done outside of film composing. If you haven't gotten a single card, um, you kind of need to have gotten one before to get it again. And I was like, well, that's great. That that chicken and egg scenario. How, how on earth do you ever get one then? I said, well, then I better take that single card. And that's what I did. Okay. Okay. But it's interesting. It's interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that initially they said, the director and the producer said, we want you to score it. Polygram says no. And then they come back and, and they say, well, would you reconsider? And I'm kind of wondering that when they got in and started looking at things, that the realization came to them that she was a better fit than we previously thought so then how do we go back and well that's a great up? point see the, the but here's the thing the creatives knew right from the get-go mm -hmm. that I was the best creative fit that's why they were excited I mean I didn't know them they came to me because they discovered the music they discovered what I had done outside of the film world mm -hmm. and we're like that's the flavor we want for the film Polygram didn't care, and, and this is this is the crux of it in our industry, yes. is that often the studios and networks do not care about a great creative fit. What they really want is their comfort hires. So they hire the same 10, 15 guys to do pretty much everything. And this still exists today. You know, it's not gotten much better this from 95, 96 mm -hmm. to now. You know, it's a certain old school, old Hollywood mentality. Mm -hmm. And it really is completely and like owned by a very small number of men who control all of the the uh, composer real estate. They own it. They own that real estate. Mm -hmm. You know, cronyism probably figures in a little bit. You know, but it's an old boys mentality, and that's where that stuff has, has started and still to this day continues. And and the sad thing about that, because as as you were sitting there. <laughs> talking about that the first thing that popped into my head was the nfl because mm -hmm. if, if you watch football they are the exact same way you yeah. will rehire and rehire and rehire the same coach that went one in 14 but you, you you still rehire this guy and you send him somewhere else and you have yeah. so much new talent just sitting there waiting yeah. to show you what they can do and it's interesting because I don't know what's going on, but for the last month, I've found myself getting extremely frustrated because I'm, I'm much like yourself. I'm a big podcast listener. And when I would turn on a podcast, I would hear one voice and that was an older white male. Now, I have yeah. nothing against them because I've learned so much, but as I'm sitting there listening to the same person with a different name, I'm saying to myself, so you mean to tell me that there are no women in this space, that there are no people of color in this space, 
that do the same thing and do it very well. And that's one of the reasons that I started this podcast, because my thing was I'm going to highlight women in this industry that are doing phenomenal things. And I've had some of the most amazing women on this podcast, you know, Brenda Gilbert of Braun Entertainment, Angela White, Silver Lining Production, uh, Cheryl Bedford, yourself. So you mean to tell me that there are no women in this space? There's no one else but you that occupy this space? And wouldn't things be so much better if they just modeled their companies after society? Yeah. I mean, that's that's. You know, I'm yeah. not going to say that's a pipe dream, but it would be so much better because it's rational, it's logical. But the, that's that's the the problem in right. our industry is, and in the world in, at large, but certainly in our industry, so little of it is based on a rational and logical way forward. You know, it's it, there's always some other agenda, and a lot of it about keeping the power in certain circles and and keeping anybody new out. You know, whether it's women, people of color, it's, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. It, it, it is. And, you know, I'm of the mindset that you can either complain about it or do something about it. And I don't yeah. like complaining. So, I'm with you. you know, I, I just, I just do, do my part and do my best to bring awareness to things like that. But that's, let's talk about that a little bit because you know, reading, reading up on you, it, it, you know, it said that besides yourself, there's just a small but elite group of women that do film composing. So how difficult is it to navigate such a male dominated hierarchy? Well, you know, I guess because I started out in such a male-dominated area anyway, all the DJs, all the producers that I hung out with, they were all guys. I was like, you know, literally the only woman. And when I DJed for many years, too, it was really hideous because there was always a sort of like, you know, I'd get the side eye all the time until I actually got on the decks and then it was a whole different ballgame. But, you know, basically, you know, I do what I do. And I'm really super confident about what I bring to the table. Um, and so I, I navigate as I do in, 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 through the world, which is with confidence and with a sense of purpose and, um, and, and that's it. You know, I, I got my head down. I love the work. I'm all about the work. I'm all about the collaborative work. You know, the, the nice thing about scoring projects as opposed to being a record producer is that I am, it's my job to to create and, and serve the vision of my filmmakers. And it's the same in film and in television, although I am really connected to different creatives in, in each one. So in film, my my greatest relationship is with the director. In television, it's with the producers, and it's usually the showrunner who is the, the lead producer, the exec, one of the executive, executive producers. And But it's interesting that you ask that because when I was hired to score Hawthorne, Something kind of unusual happened there <laughs> uh, where, you know, when Glenn Mazzara took over Hawthorne in season two, he and I had already worked on stand up on the Fox show that I that I scored previously um, on the Fox show. I was told by business affairs 
at Fox, though I was only the second woman in 16 years to score a television show for the network. Mm. Uh, it was Shirley Walker and then me. Wow. Shirley Walker had long passed away. Yeah, I read that. I was shocked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is just, it blew my mind. I, this was 2006. So when Glenn came to me for Hawthorne, we'd already at least had a chance. We'd, we'd built a relationship. We'd had a good working relationship and we'd gotten to know each other. And when he took over Hawthorne, which was unexpected, he immediately just reached out to me and said, hey, you know what? I'd really, I really want you on this with me. Let's, you know, and I had no relationships with Sony, TNT, Overbrook. Um, so he said, you know, whatever you want to give me, I will then distribute it to everyone. Give me five copies of whatever you want to do. And I said, you know what? It, it's so ridiculous the way that most productions, they, they always ask for a reel of music. Now, a reel of music is, is half the picture, really, because the skill is not about writing a beautiful piece of music or a dramatic piece of music. It's actually, can you write a piece of music that knows that is built to support the action, the visuals? Mm -hmm. And so that is a whole different, different thing. And so I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll get a, cut, a real cut together that that speaks to Hawthorne that I feel would at least speak to everyone and would show what I what I actually do to picture because that's that's what you're hiring, you know, and and I make that point also because there are filmmakers who are very excited about hiring their favorite bands, and that often winds up being a big problem for them because again the skill set is different. And um, and not everyone who can write music can score something, can actually work with visuals. Right. So it's a whole thing. So he said, great. And he circulated it and everything happened and I got hired. Great. But as I'm working on the show, so the first couple of episodes, we have to rush them to to press to get to start getting the PR working before the show is actually released and broadcast. And um and on the very first episode, you know, I always make sure I go to, to the dub stage. I'm always on the dub stage when, when mixing is happening. I, because I also, I program and engineer and mix. I, and I know what I've output. I, there's nobody better that is going to be able to help troubleshoot something. If there's something that's irking someone, if there's, a, if something comes up. So. I'm on the, I come to the dub stage and, and I'm like, and I know everything's working because I've already been sending quick time movies to everyone and getting feedback and, and I know it's all good. And I get on the stage and it sounds horrendous. Mm. All of my score sounds like it's about 3000 miles away, mm. swimming in reverb or, you know, other, other types of Atmos and effects. And I'm like, I look at my, my music editor and I'm like, what's going on? And he said, I don't know. I, I know it doesn't sound right, but I've asked them. I've asked the mixers, and they're saying they're not adding anything. They're not doing anything weird to your to your score. And I said, well, that's kind of weird. So I actually spoke to the uh, the, the sound mixer on from Standoff, who I had a great relationship with. You know, over the course of 18 episodes, mm -hmm. being on the dub stage on an almost weekly basis. You know, we, and he's a fantastic mixer, uh, Larry Benjamin. And I said, Larry, what do you what do you think could be going on? Because you know how, how my stuff translated. I never had a problem once on that show. And um, and he said, you know what? They've done some stuff in just in some some of the Sony studios where they've upgraded certain 
equipment. And it may be the case that they're not really like there's some settings in the matrix and in the, in the 5.1 matrix that they're not quite, you know, up to speed with yet. Like that, that could be something. Why don't you ask them to take it out of the matrix and just, just play it in glorious stereo. I mean, you know, the, the cues I was doing for Hawthorne were not these massive, you know, the no car chases. We're not talking about, you know, SWAT surrounding the building right. like, like we had on, on standoff. You know, these were these were kind of, you know, it's a character study. So it was it was a different thing. You don't need to throw the score into like some mega 5.1. You know, it, it doesn't require the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we did. And it immediately cleaned it up. Oh. But, but the interesting thing is that, you know, the, the composer that I replaced on on the show is someone who did 33% of all of Sony's television productions over a 30-year period, and his name is Snuffy Walden. And Snuffy had big relationships with everybody on that dub stage. And, you know, I'm not saying anything, but I I mean, it it literally came down to me having a, I I said to to the associate producer, I said, you know what? I know what my stuff, tra- how much stuff translates on, onto another, onto a dub stage. I and I, I stand by the integrity of what I've output as, as mixes. So I will, I am willing to come down on any day that you want to troubleshoot this with the sound mixers, you know, without pointing fingers or blaming anybody or anything. Right. And and that's how I actually managed to get to get that problem fixed. But I was so. It was interesting because not everyone could tell, like, but it was really obvious. I mean, it was super obvious to, to anyone who was really um, in a position to judge it. But um, I was so adamant about it. I said, I'll pay to do that. Believe me, that would have killed me. Mm-hmm. But I said, I will pay to go in there because I, I, I promise you this is not the way it should be sounding. And it's not on me. And I don't want people thinking it's on me. Right. Because so, it ends up, it's, it's, it's your name on it. This is it. And and no one outside of, of our crew working on it is going to know. They're just going to be like, God, what, what was wrong with that composer? Uh, you know, so but yeah, that was a bit stressful. And that's the only time I've really come up against something where I thought mm, this, that's a little weird. But, you know, again, um, being a woman in that position probably made it even worse because yes. it's I, I honestly don't think that anybody any of my male compatriots, any of my buddies who are also composers who are men, I none of them would have been second guessed like that. It, it would have been like, of course it's on us. Let us, you know, let us kiss your feet and fix it. Right. You know, not rather than it being like, we're not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. This is, oh, it must be you. That's just you. Know? You're being emotional. Don't worry about it. Hey, everybody, it's Floyd Marshall, host of A Conversation With. Have you ever listened to a podcast and said to yourself, I'd like to ask him a question? Well, you can just message me with a question or a comment, and I'll make sure to respond to it in the very next episode. To your success. Visit anchor.com to send Floyd a question. But it's interesting that you talk about that because 
a few ladies that I know, one's a casting director, what are both casting directors, but one also directs film. And they talked about how they clashed with the DPs on the oh. sets yes. because, you know, it's, it's my set. I hired you to do yes. a job for me, not the other yeah. way around. So if, if I'm instructing you, see, we're working and we're all adults. So I'm not telling you, I'm instructing you per the contract to do yeah. this or to shoot the scene this particular way. Now, Anyone worth their salt will take input because no one knows everything. So if, if a director of photography says, hey, well, you know what? Maybe that should be a close up as opposed to a wide shot because yeah. of this. And then you sit yeah. there and you listen to you make that decision as the executive producer or, or the director or whatever. But right. they were talking about the amount of blowback and disrespect that they were receiving. They ended, they ended up having to fire someone. So it's interesting that you talk about the fact that you hear it. So here's the thing. If you heard it, they heard it. Absolutely. And no, no one said anything. Come on now. Yeah. If, I mean, and even worse, my my music editor, who's my right-hand person, whichever music editor is hired on that particular gig, it, it is their job to protect the integrity of what I give them mm -hmm. on the dub stage. Thank God I went to that mix, or I would never have known, probably until they broadcast it, by which point it would have been way too late. Right. Uh, you know, so it was a really, yeah, it, it's, it's something else. And, you know, I, I totally know exactly what you're talking about because I've heard that not only from women but I've also even heard it from some of the men that I've worked with some of the male directors who have been completely undermined by DPs who probably have their sights set on directing and, and can't help themselves but bully everybody around them and it's just such a no-no it's so bad well you know what the, the the quickest way to alleviate those types of uh, problems and symptoms is to go out and shoot your own, create your own content. It's that simple. If, if, if you want to direct that bad and if you feel as though that you can do it, put together exactly. a team and, and make a film. It's, it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, look and that, that's what I did as a, as a recording artist and, and a record producer. I didn't wait for somebody to hire me and tell me what to do. I just did something and showed people what I could do. And then they were like, and you know, when it came to composing, thank goodness, I, I had that kind of innate ability to to really get into the picture. And truly, it's my greatest love. I, I There's nothing I love more than working to picture. It is my, my passion, my bigger passion, which is why I haven't released as many records in recent years. You know, I, and I have my own label and I do all of that stuff. And I, and I still love it, but, I, but really composing is my, is my thing. And who knew? Yeah. But, you know, but let's talk about that for a second, because earlier you said something about filmmakers hiring their favorite band and it not working out. It's, it's interesting when, when I was making short films and when I would run across people that made films. And now that I am a film festival curator, you, you'll get a film and the music will be playing in a certain scene. And it's like, you just laid that music over that. And it wasn't really made for that scene. And that is so important because 
oftentimes yeah. if the scene doesn't have dialogue, the actions of the actor and the music, because I, I, I can remember, I'll just give you an example. There was a scene in Braveheart when uh, the, the Prince of Scotland has his helmet ripped off. Mm-hmm. And Mel Gibson, and then he, no, no, yeah, Mel Gibson rips his helmet off. Okay. And he, Mel Gibson sits on the ground and just looks at him. Mm-hmm. Not a word said, but the music it, in the background and right. Mel Gibson's expression. I can't remember the, uh, he's a phenomenal actor, but I can't remember the other, the other gentleman that played the, uh, the Prince of Scotland. But the music just added so much to that scene and oftentimes filmmakers really miss that that they'll just throw something in there that doesn't move the scene along so can you speak to that yeah i think it's you know it's interesting that you that you see that and that you've noted that it's you know, this is why I, I work to picture. I don't I don't write a bunch of music and then hand it over and let a music editor cut it in. I work really nuanced to picture. I catch every one of those micro expressions, those little gestures, those little moments that um, that can get lost, you know, or, you know, or maybe that other people don't even notice. But I notice everything and I work off of that and I'm inspired by it. And the tone and the, the, the way that something is shot, it, it's so specific. And each project is different. You know, some things are, are very small and contained. And, they, you know, and, and a lot of, like, young filmmakers sometimes get into that habit, or it depends on who they're, who they're hiring as, as a picture editor. Because the first point of entry for, mu- for music into a film or a television show is a picture editor, usually. Sometimes a music editor, but most often it's the picture editor. Because they like to use music as they cut, mm-hmm. and that makes total sense. But sometimes they will tempt something with enormous pieces of orchestral score. I mean, they did that in, in standoff. And we would sit in our spotting sessions, and they would literally say to me, yeah, we don't want this. This is way too big. It's just too overblown. But angelize it. I was like, okay, I'll angelize it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, but um, but yeah, it's it's a real thing. When when music is not properly married to picture, it takes you out. Yes. There's no there's no other way to describe it. And you never want to be taken out. And sometimes even score will take you out if it's, again, not appropriately sized or appropriately put together. And sometimes, you know, I'm watching things that are big productions, studio productions or big television productions. And the score really doesn't do justice to the picture and to the drama. I'm very sensitive to that. You know, it's really, it is never about me. It is always about serving picture and serving the vision of my collaborators and my contemporaries. It's like, it's it's so important for me to spend the time to really get to understand what it is, even when they can't necessarily speak to me in, in sort of musical terms, because I don't care about that stuff. I'm not, I'm not steeped in theory. I don't, it's not my thing. You know, talk to me about how you feel. Talk to me about what, you know, what you want to feel at the end of that scene or in the middle of the scene or a weird turn you want to make on a dime where we're going in this direction. But, oh, something else just happened. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. So that's. 
Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> and, and and I'm sitting here thinking of, I cannot remember the name of this film, but Anthony Hopkins was in it, and Brad Pitt when Brad Pitt played Death. I he was a devil, right? He was, or he, yeah, he was. I know exactly the one, and no, I can't he, remember. No, he he visited. He visited. Anthony Hopkins was the businessman, and Brad right. Pitt got hit by a bus, I think, and then he came back. He came back as oh, what is the name of that film? I know I can't remember either. And I he was eating peanut butter in the kitchen. He was like, "Well, what's this? They like peanut butter," but <laughs> the score in that film, there was this one scene where Anthony Hopkins' daughter. And Brad Pitt had finally, they made love. Right. And, I remember, And yeah. the the music. And see, I'm, I'm a big crier. I'm a big crier. And if it hits me, I cry. Same and here. every time I see that movie, when they show that scene and that music, mm. it's like, oh my goodness, because it, it, it's visceral. It hits you in your core yeah. and you're like, wow. And, and it, and it, it moved me so much. I had to go look it up. I'm like, who did the score? What's this guy's name? And I'm in my right. car listening, just, just listening to the score and just yeah. re-envisioning the, the movie in my head Yeah, because yeah, yeah. it, I was like, oh my gosh, it hit me in the gut, but it was so good. And yeah. when you can do that, when you can do that to an audience where there's no dialogue, but there's just music playing. And that mm -hmm. music is hitting you on a on a primal level. Yeah. Then you've then you've done your job. And here's what's interesting because I listened to some of your music today, and everything that I listened to, <laughs> I wanted to light some incense and a joint. <laughs> I really did. I have been known to be very trippy. I yeah. said I need some incense, and I have not. <laughs> imbibed in years mm. since I was right. a teenager. I hope my kids are listening to this because the, they don't know that dad did that. But every time I listen to your music, uh, Daggers and, like and, and then the, and then the gosh, the one with Mystic because I was on SoundCloud. Destiny Complete? Yes. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, I kind of need to light some incense and turn down the lights and light one up. So I can get the real feeling here. Right on. So, so talk about your music because everything that I listened to, it just, it, it just had that, that vibe where, hey, it's time to relax and kick back and just. Interesting. You know, it, it's funny. Not a lot of my score has been released except for adulthood, which is really left of center and nice. very specific. I, I heard and that too today. That was woo. It's really, it's, but it's, it's so non-traditional. And so most people don't really get it unless they get the film and they understand why. And I'll, I can explain about that, but it's interesting that you're talking about what, what score does when it's, and, and this also ties into all the music that I make. So as a, as a, you know, the records are very different from what I do for score. Score takes me everywhere, it takes me to so many different places that I would never do as a recording artist or record producer. And I scored a film called Gaia with, as an independent. And it's a two plus hour film with almost no dialogue in it. And it's set in the Arizona desert. So there isn't a beat or a cool factor or any kind of grooviness needed or anywhere in it. It's very organic and it's very subtle. 
And and it's so interesting because as I I mean I'm I'm about to finally release this album because I own the score for this for this film. So I'm I'm putting that together now and I'll be releasing it with, hopefully by the end of the year maybe the beginning of next year. I have a of a nine minute cue in this film that packs the most enormous emotional punch. No dialogue whatsoever. It's all told through visuals and and music. And um, it's uh, it's incredible what I you know to to have the ability to do that. You know, often I I don't. I, there's no canvas in a lot of these projects. You know, television. There's no time for a six nine minute cue. Right. I mean, that's you half know, the show. It's, it's all exactly. It's all action and it's all dialogue, which is cool. And I I literally write and and sculpt my mixes under dialogue so that when it hits the dub stage, they don't even have to start doing, they don't have to sculpt my cues. I've already pre-done that because I want to know that it works. I don't want it leaving me, you know, not knowing whether or not it really works. I don't want to be throwing music under dialogue that might in any way take your ear away from those very important words that are being spoken. So, um, but it was a really interesting thing to score something that had no dialogue in these, in these long stretches because I still found myself doing this with the mix. You know, it was still like there still had to be things, even even though I built in dynamics into the writing, but even even after I'd like gotten it all in place, I still felt like some things needed to kind of come up and down. It was so interesting, you know, and it, so it was just score and and sound effects. And um yeah, it's 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 a pretty amazing thing. You know, I've I've talked a little bit about this film to, to a couple of people recently. You know, this film didn't really have all this heavy duty emotional stuff in it to, when I signed on to do it, when I agreed to to score it. The director said just kind of you know off the cuff, he said, well, you know, I'm gonna do so, I'm gonna just go back to the desert and do some pickups, and um, so there'll be a couple of new scenes in there. You know, next time you see it, and I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> It wasn't just a matter of like, there's a couple of new scenes and it's like a little, it, it went from being a really cool, interesting art house piece to being a very powerful and very emotional art house piece. And yeah, so I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about listening to a piece of music, a piece of score separate from the film and it's still conjuring all this stuff up. I actually played six minutes of the nine-minute piece in somebody's room on Clubhouse the other night. It's really interesting. I, I rarely, rarely ever play anything. You know, I'm, I'm always the person, I'm in, like, rooms where I'm listening and helping, giving, you know, giving encouragement, not criticism, but encouragement to, to up-and-coming artists, and I love doing that. Every Wednesday night, we have a great, great room, and it's just, you know, it's just joyful to kind of give back in that way. I love it. But, um, but I rarely ever play anything and and but in one in one person's room they asked me to specifically play so i was like oh, okay you know well, but um, the room on wednesdays the uh, the wednesday room is a 5 p.m uh pacific so that's well, that's, eight, eight that's eight o'clock here you know what i think i may stop in because uh on room you you would love it's a, just a love fest i mean we have the most brilliant people come in that from India, from Germany, from all over the world. Wow. It's incredible. And some some of them have never played live before or they've never sung a cappella before or they've never shared any of their music before. Wow. And it's incredible what 
what transpires and it's just it's a love fest it's a really nice nice environment wow that sounds beautiful and you know what just switching gears for a hot second yeah clubhouse has really been a game changer for so many people yes it has because as i said earlier some of the people that i've met i would have never come into contact with ever mm -hmm. i would have never and you know they say never say never but come on let's be realistic I don't yeah. think that we would have ever met if not for Clubhouse. Absolutely. So I, I, I consider it I consider it such a blessing and I hope that it's a blessing for the people that come in your room on Wednesday because I often find that when I moderate rooms, people will just sit in the audience and we always encourage them to come up to the stage. It's a very safe space because sure. you never know what can happen if you come to this stage. You never yeah. know who's listening. If, right. if you're if you're looking for that big break, you never know who's sitting on that stage that could be the purveyor of that big break for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. No so, question. You know, at least come up and introduce yourself. What I tell people, look, if you don't have anything to say, come don't up be shy. and just yeah. introduce yourself. Because as they say, closed mouths don't get fed. True. So, so back to you. <laughs> you released an album back in 2001 and I saw on your Instagram post. So now are you going to re-release that or were you just celebrating the anniversary date of the release? Because I was looking for that album today. It's well, you know, I still have some physical copies of it, but um, I have I have CDs of it still that we probably should, could just sell through Bandcamp or something. But it, it's on it's digitally available on i on um, Apple, oh. Apple iTunes. You know, it's 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 all over. Like it can be purchased digitally in various different places all across the web. But as far as a physical product, you know, I had a DJ recently ask for that double vinyl because it's a it's and it's a beautiful packaging thing that we did with it. Um, I don't know that I have too many of those left, but I definitely I still have some CDs. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it is it's out there. I mean, people can either purchase it or stream it. It's it's OK. I I do more of the streaming now and I'm not because my car doesn't it doesn't even have a CD player. It doesn't. My, the, my car doesn't have a CD player. I know. I mean, this is what we were all talking about in New Hollywood the other day. It's just like you know, it's things have changed so much, and yes. really, streaming has absolutely cannibalized record sales. Yes. There's just no around that, and the genie's not going back in the bottle. No, so. that genie, um, that genie has died. Yeah. So basically, everything that we, unfortunately, we, but you know, I still, I release everything digitally. It's so much simpler. It's so much easier, and it's what people really want. It's it's just a, an easy way to immediately get that gratification if you want something. Right. You know, you hear it. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, so what would you tell, and it's interesting because this is so funny. I've never, well, first of all, I've never interviewed someone who scored films for Hollywood, but what would you tell or say to someone that is interested in getting into into this space, the film, the scoring aspect of the film business, and especially young women, young women of color, if yeah. if this is the avenue that they want to pursue, what would you say to them? It's a very tough road to get in 
And because I didn't come in, in, in on a traditional lane on, in the, on that path, it's hard to say, you know, exactly what to do. I will say this, that there's a sort of dirty little secret in, in the, on the composing end of things that um, many composers really come in as ghostwriters for A-list composers. So a lot of the big names, like the Hans Zimmers, the Mike Posts, the Danny Luxes, these guys have huge teams of, of Berkeley graduates um, who ghostwrite and produce and do stuff you know, behind the curtain for a long time. And maybe one day they finally get a break and somebody knows that they've done it. So you have to kind of consider, like I had no idea that that was going on when I first, when I got that first opportunity with Gridlocked. I knew something wasn't right about the way things were. And, and Stuart did, Stuart Copeland did actually kind of tell me a little bit about that. But I had no idea until I was actually in it, in that world, that it was quite so closed off to, to any new people coming in unless they'd kind of come up, you know, under someone else and for X amount of time. So, um, you know, I didn't do that. I, I, you know, I, am grateful that I did stuff that caught the ear of that. I was able to, you know, be invited in as such, but it's, it's not, that's not the typical way. And so, but there's so there's never just one way to do anything. So what I would say is don't worry about how anyone else did it. You know, get stuff out in the world where people can discover you, listen to what you've done and and then, you know, look at who's doing what and maybe try to target some directors or, you know, other creatives that you could maybe if, if you can get lucky and maybe someone's on Clubhouse and you're on Clubhouse or maybe they're out there in the world and you can find a way to get to them via social media or some way to get them to, to somehow pay some attention to what you're doing. I mean, at least in this day and age, you can do that. When I started out, none of this existed. The Internet was practically like being born, you know, so it's, um, it's a very different world. So there is the, the, the possibility, the opportunity to actually get to people in a way that you never could before. So I would say, don't worry about how difficult it is and don't worry about how many closed doors you might have to face. And don't worry about you didn't go to film school and you didn't you didn't learn how to do this in this particular environment or that particular environment. Just go with your gut, follow your passion, do what and be and be realistic. Also, you know, really know that if you're presenting things to people, that it really is of, of a quality and of a type that could really get them confident about you not just excited but feel confident enough to hire you to do something that that would be the thing that was a great point that you know what i i wish i had a i wish you could use a highlight marker because <laughs> getting good quality out that they can trust that is so important that that is oh my goodness ladies and gentlemen if you hadn't listened to anything else in this podcast, I really hope you heard that because that is so important that you put out quality content. And if it takes you a little while longer, so be it. But put out good. That was the most important thing said on this podcast today. Putting out something 
that will enable the powers that be to trust you enough to say, you know what, that's somebody that I can rock out with. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you get lucky that someone has the power to, to actually hire you. I mean, look what I've been through. And I've been through it several times, you know, in my career where the creatives wanted me, even after I'd proven myself, even after I'd had loads of credits. Mm-hmm. And somebody else comes in and trumps that that power, you know. And so sometimes, you know, you might think that you've got the best relationship in in a particular scenario, but it, you never know. And don't get discouraged by anything because if it doesn't work out one time, it doesn't mean it's never going to work out. You know, that's another thing. And it's, you know, it's it's a it's a um, it's a career of ups and downs. It's a life of ups and downs. Let's face it. It's just you know it's just part of life. So I always just encourage people to kind of go for it. I mean, you know, I've I've met some such brilliant creatives. You know, just by the by in the in the industry, you know, I don't even remember how exactly I became aware of Ava DuVernay, but it was, you know, a long time ago. It was before she shot her first her narrative feature, I Will Follow. And because she she went up on my radar, I, I guess I reached out to her and then we wound up talking and she was amazing. I mean, she was so incredible then before she'd ever really she became a director as right. such um that it was it was so evident that she was going to be huge i literally left that first meeting with her ever and said to my husband oh my god this woman is so incredible i i can't even i can't tell you what she's going to do but i know it's going to be so huge it's going to be impressive it's going to be something else and um and obviously that, that's the case, but, and I, and I take no credit for putting that into the universe. No, I did. <laughs> but you meant it, but you know what? Manifestation works. This is the thing. And she was amazing. And then we wound up having a great discussion about her, about her film. And I, I had agreed to, to score it. And then Hawthorne came along and, and I, my window just disappeared right, right at that moment. But I did wind up, um, she did come back to me to score that the uh, CBS pilot for justice, which was a really crazy, crazy ride. No spotting session, no time to spot. It was just really fast and furious, which pilots are. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was a, a, an amazing experience with her. She, and she's an incredible woman, just an incredible human being as well as a, as a creative. Yeah. Well, you know, we're about to wrap this up, but you know what? You just, you just said something that I, I, I have to talk about working basically without a schedule kind of sort of yeah like with a pilot what is that like and what how do you prepare for that because i really want young composers or any composer or or film scorer for that matter that's listening or will be listening to this to understand the rigors of what they're signing up for because yeah. oftentimes you're like, well, I want to do it, you know, the glitz and the glamour. No, yeah. we're going to take you in the back room where, you know, there are coffee cups strewn all about cigarette butts. You know, my, my eyes are bloodshot. I haven't brushed my teeth in two days. So <laughs> I want to talk about that because yeah. I, I, oh. I read I read how you said that when you're working on television, it's go, 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 go. Yeah. 
I'm literally like not even on the planet, I feel. It's it's unbelievable. Scoring network television is is like nothing else. And there's a lot of film composers that, that won't touch television because of it, because it's so grueling and so fast. Sometimes, you know, you're turning out like 30 some odd minutes of score in a week. Mm. And you're not just writing it, you're producing it and, and it has to be, you know, delivered and done. That's a big deal. <laughs> Pilot is also like nothing else because you're constantly chasing cuts. So you are never locked. Your picture is never locked. And for someone like me who doesn't just cut music in, you know, I'm working to picture. So everything is synchronizing, synchronizing, synchronizing. They start recutting. Oh, all these things have to, and then everything has conformed and changed. And it's, it's a big, it's a big job. And it's also, you know, in this particular instance with, with Ava, this was a, I've literally never worked on a on a studio or you know major project that we did not have time to to spot together where we all sit in a room and we watch the project from first frame to the last frame and discuss every single piece of music that's going in there whether it's score or source source music really the music supervisor would be more that's their their lane their area but we we sit down together and we also spot sound so we usually spot it all together but there was no time. It was just such a crunch that Ava just said to me, listen, I hired you because I, I know you know what I like, you know what I want, and I know you can deliver. And that was great. But it's really grueling and it's a little bit disconcerting because I didn't meet any of the other producers either. And there's a whole aspect of that that, you know, if you really want to give people an inside look at what is what is it. So when you're hired as a composer to score a pilot, unless the person who created the show and is at the helm of the pilot unless they're going to be the showrunner you may or may not if the show get, if the show gets picked up which is a big if to begin with if it gets picked up you may not go with it because if your relationship is with someone who doesn't is not going to be show running when they hire a showrunner i can guarantee you they got their guy mm. it's, and i say their guy because it's usually their guy mm. i mean it's nine out of ten times or 99 out of 100 um so in this particular instance, you know, I had not had the ability to sit in a room with anyone and build any kind of rapport or relationship with them. You know, I, I was working directly with with Ava and I would send cues to her. And there was always that chance that what if this thing got picked up and then I don't even know the, who the showrunner is. But the creator of the show, I did finally meet on the dub stage, believe it or not. And the first thing he said to me was, I'm so happy to meet you. I love with what you're doing. And I really hope we get picked up so we get to work together, which was a huge relief, to be honest, because who knew? And then we didn't get picked up. Mm. <laughs> and that's the thing that people don't you know, realize is that nothing is a given. I mean, this was a huge team. This was Tribeca, oh, which wow. is Robert's company. This was... Oh my God, James Patterson's company. It was based on a James Patterson novel. You know, it was, and it was CBS. It was big, and yeah. So that was that was a disappointment, unfortunately, for all of us that worked so hard on it. But, but this is what happens, and this is, you know, you can't count on anything, and you have to be prepared to work flat out. I mean, literally 16, 17 hour days with no break, Mm -hmm. week after, you know, just to just to be able to deliver. It, it can be that grueling. And so you have to love it. You have to love, you have to be able to love not being out and about. You know, I've done all of that. I've, I've toured and I've done lots of public things, 
I really don't care about that stuff, to be honest. That's probably why you never see me in these video um, interviews. But it's it's not that important to me. What I what really my my happy place is in the studio and where nobody can see me, and that's great. You know, I I'm just in it. I'm completely in it, immersed in it. And so I would say that yes, if if you want to consider composing for television, especially, be prepared. It is a very grueling schedule, very punishing schedule. You really have to be able to think on your feet. You got to be able to map something out and hit it, and not and not get it wrong the first time out. Mm. It could be time to be doing multiple versions of things and, right. and going back to the drawing board. You, you need to just really understand what it is exactly they want from you and and be able to deliver it. That's that's the key. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you you've listened to a masterclass, so I hope you took notes. So, what's next? What's next? I'm uh, I, there's a few projects I can't really talk about yet. Okay. So, but but I am releasing a, a, the score album, which is a kind of a very big departure from most of the things that I've that are out there that people can hear that I've done. And uh, another, uh, if I can ever finish the artist album, I'll do that as well, which will be a little bit trippy and a little bit left field, but it kind of bridges the gap between what I do as a uh, as a record producer and what I do as a composer. So sort of like encompasses both worlds. So I'm working on those those two albums, which um, it's about time, basically. I should have done it ages ago. At, at the same time as talking to a bunch of people about some really great composing projects. So we'll see. Well, I am definitely looking forward to hearing them. I'm looking forward to hearing them. And I make sure that when I listen to them, I will be in my house because I, I cannot do it in my car. <laughs> because it's because okay. it's so relaxing. It is so relaxing. So that's definitely something that I would do. And and I and I just started doing hypnotherapy and we have to do uh, meditation every night. So actually, I'm going to do that in a little bit. But uh, that, that would be good meditation music just to really relax you and, and, and center you some of it but not the drum and bass tracks that i put out okay well that may be the the, uh, the track that i listen to going to your... to the club on the rare yeah, this... occasions that i do go to the club which is very it's so amazing I, I look back on my life and remember how i used to be and now and it's total much like yourself i don't need to be out and about yeah. at all at all you know we've done it right been there done that been there done that. Yeah. that's yeah it's all good, yeah. you know, and, and look, and considering we're still in the, in the middle of a pandemic, it's probably best that we don't yes. go too But uh, But yes, but yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff because I recorded this 60 channels and jazz clash too, so there's a lot of different flavors. Yeah. Oh, I'm definitely, looking, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So where can people find you? Well, I guess on the web, you know, there's the angelsoundclash.com, which is my website. Um, on IG, I'm the angel dot super crucial S U P A crucial. Um, unfortunately, by the time I got to all the social media, someone had taken the angel name. So on Twitter, I'm just super crucial S U P A crucial. You know, on, on different different platforms, Facebook. I'm on Facebook as the angel. I the angel sound clash. I think similar to my website. But really, if you if you go to IG, I have a link tree there, and you can pretty much find me anywhere. Ladies so. and gentlemen, follow her on our platform platforms. She is absolutely amazing. Angel, it was such an honor and a pleasure having you on a conversation with, and you definitely have to come back after those projects that you can't talk about are done and released so that we well. can then talk about those projects. 
But again, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. I learned, and that's the beauty of this. I learned so much. I learned so much. And, you know, I have a better understanding of how your world works. I know. I, well, this was a total pleasure, and Floyd, it's been such such a nice thing to to have met you on a on an audio app. Yes. And not see you, and to be able to wave to you, and yeah, it's been a real pleasure to be with you today. And I will definitely stay in touch. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And ladies and gentlemen, again, so please follow the Angel on all of her social media platforms. And if you like what you've heard, subscribe, so you can so you can get this good stuff all the time and again thank you so much for spending a little bit over an hour of your time because as i like to say time is the one commodity that you can never recoup so the fact that you decided to spend it with us is so amazing and it is such a blessing and an honor so again thank you so much and this has been a conversation with the angel good night everyone good night, good night. <laughs>